The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We continue this morning in our series on Acts, and yet it's Mother's Day, and I want to acknowledge that. And uh, we, we have had a, an aim in our worship services for, for decades, for several years, that that our worship services would be marked with sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. In touch with the sorrows and receiving God's comfort and rejoicing in God in it all and, and through it all. And uh, just let me say a word of honor to my, the, my women as a way to honor all the women and all the mothers. Uh, I'm so thankful to God for the mother that God gave me who passed away in in, uh, 2017. Her last words to me, hours before she died, I love you, baby. That's my mom. And I'm so thankful for the gift of my wife. Mother of four, grandmother of seven now, and so thankful to God for the grace that she pours into our children day after day after day and teaches me about how to love my own children and grandchildren. So, bless you this Mother's Day. Trust that God will be with you in your sorrows and in your joys. Our text is Acts 5. Verses 1 through 11. And just to review, last week we were at the last part of chapter 4 in Acts. And we saw this beautiful description of the early church. And my summary of that text was observed that believing in Jesus Christ creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. And it did. And it was beautiful. And Barnabas was this, this exemplary person who just embodied the the love and the one-heartedness and the sacrifice as he, he saw needs of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and he, he sold some property that he had. He, he drew from his assets, cashed them in, brought them to the church in order to meet the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. The interesting thing is that that passage is connected to this passage. And in this passage, the picture takes an awful twist. Let's read it. Acts 5.1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let me tell you my aim before I pray. My aim is based on verse 5 and verse 11. Verse 5 says, And great fear came upon all who heard of it. In verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. See my aim? That God would, upon hearing these things, grant a grace of a fear of the Lord, of the fear of the Lord upon us, upon Bethlehem, upon the whole church. Father in heaven, make it so, I pray. These early believers experienced the heights of love in the church and the disappointing disillusionment of sin in the church. So I pray that as you granted this early church here in Acts 5, a grace to fear your name, I pray that you would do likewise to us as we hear of your word this morning from our text. In Jesus' name, amen. It's ironic that some of my best experiences with human beings have come in the context of the community of believers and some of my worst experiences with human beings have come in the context of other believers. You know, on the one hand, my deepest experiences of love and forgiveness and acceptance and unity, grace have come in the church, come with other believers. And on the other hand, some of my greatest disappointments and hurts have come by the sins of other believers. And I confess that my hopes and expectations for the church, for other believers, is higher than my expectations I have for unbelievers. And I also, if I'm honest with myself, I confess that my expectations of other believers is oftentimes greater than my expectations for myself. Let me tell you the first experience of seeing sin in the community of believers. This is, this is not to trifle with 
what I'm talking about or the text, but rather just my first experience as a young believer. I became a Christian at Bible camp. I was 15 years old, and I am telling you, camp was the closest thing to heaven that I could imagine. People loved each other. Spend the days studying the Bible, reading the Bible, praying the Bible, listening to teaching, uh, discipling one another. We were in discipleship groups. We were worshiping and singing and song. God, God turned on my just ability to worship him in song at camp. And even in recreation, there was a sense of unity in the Lord. Love for Jesus, love for one another just marked those days. And, and it was an awesome six days. <laughs> And uh, I came away wanting more of that community. And so, you know what I did? You're not supposed to do this when you go to, like, a camp that has, you know, 10 or 12 weeks of scheduled camp. You know, one is Mark Senior High Camp. We don't just go. I re-enrolled two more times for two more senior, camp, senior high camps uh, to immerse myself in this community. And with camp as my ideal, no other, <laughs> no other context of Christians could measure up. So I'd go to my home church, couldn't measure up. I mean, even in my own family, didn't measure up. Went to Christian college, and (laughs) I think it's funny right now. I still remember standing in line one of the first days for breakfast. Breakfast was terrible, and little egos, you know, waffles. But anyway, college, standing in line, somebody cuts in front of me. I thought this was heaven. <laughs> you know, that it bu- I remember it bugged me. And then, not to mention dorm life, clicks. I became very disillusioned with the Christian community. And it was in those, it was in my first year at college. I took a class on Christian classics and I was assigned the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together. Get that book. Our bookstore has it. Get that book in thinking about Christian community. There's so many nuggets in there about how to love the the church that God has given you, the Christian community that God has given you and not prefer one that he hasn't. But let me read one quote that I found helpful. Bonhoeffer basically says that there's a curriculum that God has for every believer, and it includes disillusionment with the church. Huh. I'll read it. Certainly serious Christians who are put in a community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian communal life should be. And they will be anxious to realize it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of Christian community. So among the things that I see God doing in Acts 5 after the heights of the end of chapter 4 
is teaching the church an awareness of our sin, an awareness of God's holiness, and summing that up in a fear of the Lord which he graced the whole church with. So let's look at the text. You know, the New Testament church is messy. It's messy. You know, you've probably heard people say, you know, if we could just get back to the early church, like everything would be fixed. Like, have you read those letters? <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. And, you know, so on the one hand, you know, the church is redeemed, set apart, filled with the Holy Spirit, has uh, been, been set apart, is being sanctified. We await glorification and uh, indwelling sin remains. Hence, we pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. That's the church that the epistles are written to. That's the New Testament church. And there's enough sin to shatter the idealized conceptions of the early church right after the experience with Barnabas. I'm going to read it again. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, at first glance, it looks just like Barnabas doing the same thing Barnabas is doing, but the problem is that verse 2 says, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. So Peter says to him in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And after Peter said that, Ananias dropped dead. And the young men came and carried him out and Three hours later, Sapphira comes in without a clue what just happened to her husband. And Peter asked her, verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much, for such and such a month. And she said, yes. Sapphira lied too. She was part of the conspiracy. Verse 9, Peter replies, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And she dropped dead on the spot. And they did. And verse 5. And verse 11. I'll read verse 11. Mention this great fear coming upon the church. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. Fear of the Lord. What happened? What was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? Well, it's not simply that they kept back a portion of the money. Peter made that clear. Look, while it was yours, you could do anything you wanted with it. This is not like a, a commune in which private property is confiscated. They could do willingly 
whatever they wanted to do with it. God loves a cheerful giver. I can see at least two categories of the problem. First, I have to just note that this is a satanic attack. It says it. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is the work of Satan. They are under the influence of Satan. Second, I can see at least three particular sins in Ananias and Sapphira. First is hypocrisy. They're positioning themselves to look good, to look exemplary like Barnabas. We're like Barnabas. We sold all our land to give to the the needy in the church too. That's the hypocrisy. They're seeking more satisfaction in the approval of other people than they seek in God. It's hypocrisy. Second sin I see is theft. Verse 3 says, they kept back part of the proceeds. It's a rare word that means pilfer or embezzle or misappropriate. It's a word used in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, of what Achan did in uh, keeping a portion of Israel's plunder that was commanded to be turned over to God? It, the way I think of this is, you know, how do you steal from yourself? How do you embezzle from yourself? Maybe it was something like this. Lord, I will give 100% of the proceeds of that, the sale of that property. Lord, if you cause that to sell, it's all going. And then in the moment, that would be how you could embezzle from a gift that is yours as you have offered it to God. And third, I see just flat out lying. You, you see that in the text. Ananias and Sapphira just lie straight up to Peter and to the church. Peter says something here that's worth circling. And what he makes clear is that sin at its essence is an offense against God. Sin, the very definition, the biblical definition of sin is it's against God. And yes, Ananias and Sapphira sinned against Peter and against the church. But you see what Peter said? You've not lied to men. You've lied to God. So, remember, remember King David. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, a woman who was not his wife. And then he arranged for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to be killed on the front lines with the army. Do you remember 
David's prayer in Psalm 51? What does he say? Against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. His point wasn't that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite and the kingdom. His point was the essence of sin is an offense against God. We need to be reminded of this today. Think about it another way. Jesus. Did Jesus sin when he offended the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He called them blind guides, vipers, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, uh, among other things. Now, they were offended. They were so offended that they sought to kill him. But could they have said, Jesus, you offended me. You need to seek forgiveness from God and come and apologize to me. You offended me. No. Jesus spoke the truth to them because they had sinned and offended God. And that they were offended by his words was not his sin. Here's the danger. If you go about life seeing yourself as the measure of sin, in other words, if you offend me, I'm gonna, you need to apologize. You need to get forgiveness. Do you see what you're doing? What I'm doing? It's idolatrous. I am putting myself in the place of God and defining sin by what offends me. That is a very dangerous thing to do, and it is widespread in our culture. And let us anchor our definition of sin biblically. Sin is falling short of the glory of God, offending him. That's what it is. And yes, it has relational impact and and implications and complications, but at its core, to be sin, it has to do that thing, that horrible thing thing of offending God. And if it doesn't, it's not sin. Well, what, what grace does God have for us in this text? You know, how is Christ building his church? And that's what, that question is what hooked me back into the passage to see verse 5, great fear came upon all. And to see verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. And to say, Lord, uh, 
I believe from this text that you want great fear to come on us as those who hear this passage this morning. You know, a glimpse of this fear of the Lord that marks the early church can be seen in Acts 9.31. So the church, this is a wider survey of the church, of the early church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And here it is, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Lord, grant us that, walking in the fear of the Lord. I mean, Christ is sovereignly at work in the church all the time, even at times like in our text. And we ought never, ever, ever, ever think that Satan has the upper hand. I mean, Satan intended evil through Ananias and Sapphira, right? But God intended good. Satan did not, <laughs> Satan would never think of, I know, I'm going to cause fear of the Lord to fall on all the church. But God did. It's his design. Once again, God taking what is intended for evil and turning it for good according to his sovereign power and purposes and grace to us in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Fear the Lord on the whole church. You know, in our day, we can theologize ourselves out of even, even groping with fear of the Lord. And that would be a mistake. Essential biblical attitude through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. Fear of the Lord is, is, is a basic attitude of a, of a believer in, in the covenant of grace. So, I mean, just in your heart of hearts, would you pray with me? Pray, Lord, please, from this day from this text, by your Spirit, grant that I might grow in this fear of the Lord. Grant that I might experience more this fear of the Lord. Or I could say it this way. Join David, King David, in praying this from Psalm 86, 11. Lord, unite my heart to Fear your name. Well, when God answers that prayer, what does that look like? What does that, what does it look like? And God, by his grace, grants you the fear of the Lord. You receive, let me tell you some things. A humble and contrite sense of awe of God. Fear of the Lord means that your attitude toward God is humble, broken, and reverent. You have a profound awareness that He is God, high and exalted over all, set apart exceeding in greatness and glory and goodness, sovereign in his authority, omnipotent in power. 
You have a, 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 an awareness of his excellence in all that he does and in all of his perfections. Glorious in grace, rich in mercy, awful in holiness and justice. And altogether true in right, in his judgments and in his word. And in humility and contrition, you know that he is God and you are not. Two verses. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Fear the Lord. That's the first thing I see. But not only that, when God by his grace grants you and me to fear the Lord, we receive a softened heart. Fear of the Lord means that your heart toward God is soft and responsive to Him. Pliable, not stiff-necked. No longer is your heart hardened in rebellious, rebelliousness against God, but you're tender toward God and enjoy His blessings on those who fear Him. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed, blessed, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So when God by his grace grants us to fear the Lord, he not only gives us a humble and contrite sense of awe, and not only a softened heart, but also a certainty of God's judgment. Fear of the Lord means that you are ever aware that God will judge all people in righteousness and justice and holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And Paul goes on, for the love of Christ controls us, both because we've concluded that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, fear of the Lord gives us a certainty of God's judgment. Paul carries this awareness we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and ought to tremble. And at the same time, Paul says that knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that he judges all things, as those who've escaped from God's wrath, we persuade others. Run to Jesus. 
The judgment is coming and it's real. Escape from God's wrath. Receive his salvation. That's a message out of the fear of the Lord and a trembling. No sin is overlooked. This certainty of God's judgment is what allows Christians to lay down revenge and vengeance and forgive and entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And it gives us confidence that all sins, even our own, will be punished, have been punished as believers on the cross. And for those apart from Christ, all sins will be punished eternally in, in hell. God is absolutely just, and his judgment is certain. Well, not only that, when God grants you to fear the Lord, you receive not only a humble and contrite sense of awe, not only a, a softened heart, not only a certainty of God's judgment, but a freedom from the fear of God's wrath. I already touched on that, but let me go further. The fear of the Lord means that you rest peacefully in the gospel guarantee of the love of God for us in Christ. You don't fear God's punishment or his condemnation or damnation. The fear of God and hanging by faith on every word that he has promised us in the gospel casts out fear. Casts out fear of judgment. Isn't that interesting? Fear of God, trembling at his word, Believing the certainty of judgment casts out fear because of the promise of the gospel of salvation and escape from God's wrath, wrath and everlasting love. Here's the first. First John 4, 18 and 19. For there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected by love. We love because he first loved us. Interesting. Fear the Lord that acknowledges who he is, believes what he promises, and rests in his love without fear of condemnation or punishment. Without denying the fear of who he is. It's very interesting. So not only that, not only does God give us a humble and contrite sense of awe, a softened heart, a certainty of God's judgment, a freedom from the fear of God's wrath, but also when he gives the fear of the Lord, he gives us an incentive for the fight of faith. Fear the Lord means that you tremble at the promise of the gospel that he is working in us to sanctify us. And if God himself is working in us, I'm going to fight the fight of faith. I'm not going to disregard the work of God in me. Not take that lightly. You might know where I'm getting this. 
Philippians 2.12. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Press on in your sanctification with fear and trembling because God himself is working in you (laughs) to sanctify you and pour out the fruits of the Spirit in you and cause you to walk in his ways and to love one another more and more and more. Don't trifle with that work in you by the new covenant. Isn't that interesting? Use of fear of the Lord. One more. When God, by his grace, grants you to fear the Lord, you receive not only a humble and contrite sense of awe and a softened heart and a certainty of God's judgment and a freedom from the fear of God's wrath and an incentive to fight the fight of faith, but also a joy to go to God in the fear of the Lord. It's my... This is to shake our categories, right? I'm doing this long explanation so that you don't just check out on the phrase, fear the Lord, you have meaning in it. Fear the Lord means that it is your joy to go to the Lord whom you fear in prayer over and over and over and over again to delight in praying to that God in reverence and fear. Here's the verse, Nehemiah 111. O Lord, let your heart be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So, that's the grace I pray for myself. Lord, grant that I might fear your name more and more and more. It's my prayer for Bethlehem that the fear of the Lord would come upon the whole church and all who heard. So, you know, stepping back, in the wake of the sins of Ananias and Sapphira, the, the church was not dropped into a bucket of disillusionment, but rather, by God's mighty hand, he moved the whole church to this glorious place of a shared communal sense of the fear of the Lord. May God make it so among us. Father in heaven, your word is good. Your word is so good. And your purposes are good for our good, for your glory, and for our joy. So we trust your work in our lives and in our world, and uh, particularly from this text, in our church. And we ask that you would grant that uh, as a whole, as a people, we might rest in the fear of the Lord together. 
For the glory of your name, I pray, and for our blessedness and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.